Thank you for downloading this short podcast seminar. My name is Asa Tolson. I'm a commercial member of 23ES. Uh, the title of my talk today is Civil Procedure in Banking and Finance Claims. And I'm going to focus on two issues that arise in claims by banks or finance companies, uh, one of which has received relatively recent treatment by the Court of Appeal. The first issue in question is the redaction of documents, uh, in particular assignments, um, and defences of tender before claim. Turning to the first issue, um, which is uh, disclosure and redaction of assignment documents, uh, the position is that pursuant to the relevant mortgage, uh, loan or guarantee, the lender will usually have uh, a right of assignment. Uh, and for that reason, it's not uncommon that claims are pursued not by the original lender, but by the uh, assignee. Uh, who's taken the assignment, uh, perhaps part as a, a much larger portfolio. Um, but it may be uh, in those circumstances that the assignee is reluctant to provide disclosure of the um, copy assignment itself, or at least a, uh, a full unredacted version of it. Uh, and it may be that that arises as a result of data protection issues uh, or perhaps commercial confidentiality and it's often the, the latter point which is raised in practice. The, the defendant in response to that and in response to a redacted copy uh, might and often does take the point that um, the redactions are uh, unnecessary or that the, um, the redacted part might include um, some clause or provisions which would be relevant uh, to the uh, question of the validity of the, the assignment itself um, and effectively puts the claimant assignee to proof. Now, after a series of High Court decisions uh, on this point, uh, the issue did come before the Court of Appeal uh, in a judgment handed down on the 18th of November 2022 in four appeals that were heard together. Uh, I shall refer to the case as the Emmanuel case uh, but the full citation is Promontoria Oak Limited and Emmanuel Neutral Citation 2021 EWCA Civ 1682. The common feature in the four appeals were that in each case the claim was brought by the claimant as the assignee uh, of the debt rather than the original uh, lender. The terms on which the assignment was made were regarded by each claimant as commercially sensitive uh, and therefore on that basis in each case, the assignment was disclosed only in a redacted form. For our purposes today, uh, there are four key takeaways uh, from that decision which are relevant to procedure going forward. The first is that the Court of Appeal in that case declined to determine the debtor's cross appeal, um, namely that Mr Justice Marcus Smith had uh, allegedly aired in allowing Promontoria Oak Limited to rely on their registration as proprietors of the relevant legal charge, these being mortgage debt claims, uh, as an alternative route to proving title to the debt uh, rather than disclosure of the um, assignment deed itself. Now, to provide some context for that argument, Section 114 of the Law of Property Act 1925 uh, provides that a deed executed by a mortgagee purporting to transfer the mortgage or the benefit thereof operates, unless a contrary intention is expressed, to transfer the right to demand, sue for, recover 
and give receipts for the mortgage money itself, any unpaid part of it, uh, any interest, and also um, transfers the benefit of uh, all securities for the mortgage money and the mortgagee's rights um, in relation to it. Section 51 of the Land Registration Act 2002 provides that on completion of the relevant registration requirements, a charge that is created by means of a registrable disposition uh, of a registered estate has effect, uh, if it would not otherwise do so, as a charge by deed uh, by way of legal mortgage. And Section 58 of the Land Registration Act 2002 finally provides that a legal estate is deemed vested in the registered proprietor of the illegal estate itself. It's therefore argued on the basis of those provisions by assignees of mortgage debts that if an assignee has been registered as the proprietor of the legal charge uh, in question in, in mortgage debt claims, that registration itself provides an alternative basis for the assignee to bring the claim rather than the deed of assignment uh, itself. And Mr Justice Marcus Smith reached that conclusion in the High Court, which decision the Emanuels had sought to cross-appeal to the Court of Appeal. Now, the attractiveness of the argument to assignees uh, who are reluctant otherwise to provide the portfolio assignment is perfectly clear. Because it doesn't depend upon the assignment itself, um, only the transfer of the charge, the assignee could theoretically seek to avoid the need to disclose that assignment document uh, itself. And as the Court of Appeal did not shut the door to this argument, uh, assignees may well continue to run it, um, and assignees who are especially reluctant to provide an assignment document, even in a redacted form, might continue to run uh, this argument in isolation without combining it with a claim to title based on the assignment itself. But I, I would wish to sound four notes of caution if that approach were adopted, um, relying only on the registration itself. The first is that the point has in fact gone undecided or, or unconsidered uh, at the Court of Appeal level, um, albeit it has been decided at uh, High Court level. Um, uh, the same point did arise in the case of Hancock and Promontoria, Chestnut Limited, uh, neutral citation 2020 EWCA Civ 907, um, also a Court of Appeal case, but in that case this issue was not required to be decided and therefore it remains undecided at that level. Uh, the second note of caution would be that failing to advance both claims um, or, or both bases for the claims uh, as opposed to just the registration would, as the adum goes, be leaving money on the table um, and might be depriving the claimant of an otherwise um, perfectly good argument based on the assignment uh, itself. Uh, the third is that if the TR4 transfer deed, for instance, refers to a separate assignment, it might be argued that, quote, a contrary intention is therein expressed for the purposes of section 114 of the Law of Property Act 1925, which would negative the intention for the transfer itself uh, to operate to transfer the debt, because section 114 is only a, uh, a deeming provision uh, in effect, uh, the, a contrary intention could be uh, expressed. Um, the fourth procedural note of caution is that if the intention is to rely on either one particular um, uh, of the bases for title to sue, um, or indeed both, um, the statements of case should make it perfectly clear which um, of uh, those bases are pursued 
um, or whether both are pursued. The Court of Appeal in the Hancock case, which I mentioned, did hint at the problem in that case if the matter had fallen to be decided uh, that the, the relevant statutory demand had not mentioned um, title to sue being on the basis of registration as proprietor of the charges themselves. It had only mentioned the deed of assignment in question uh, and therefore there would be a clear um, issue of pleading um, if the question of registration had not been raised uh, and one has only sought to be pursued at a later stage, at least expressly. That would be the first key takeaway from the, uh, from the Emmanuel decision. The second uh, key takeaway is the qualification of the obiter dicta of Lord Denning, uh, Master Rolls, in the Van Lynn case, um, full citation, Van Lynn Developments Limited and Pelia Construction Co. Limited, 1969, 1QB 607. The obiter dicta in question being that a debtor uh, is entitled to require at sight of an absolute assignment of which a notice has been given in order to be satisfied as to the validity of that assignment and that the assignee is in a position to give a good discharge uh, for the debt. Um, it, it was argued in the Emmanuel case that that obiter dicta was wrong, but the Court of Appeal agreed with Lord Denning insofar as the debtor is entitled uh, to ask for the assignment itself uh, to satisfy himself uh, that it does indeed assign the debt in question that he is pursued for. Uh, however, the Court of Appeal did qualify uh, that dicta by stating that Lord Denning had not said anything about the question of whether irrelevant parts of the document or confidential parts of the document could be withheld. And the view of the Court of Appeal in the Emmanuel case is that the entitlement to which Lord Denning was referring does not extend to, quote, any more of the document than sufficient to demonstrate that there has indeed been a valid absolute assignment underhand of the debt. In other words, the second key takeaway uh, is that there's not an absolute right to the entirety, uh, and that proposition therefore supports the contention on behalf of assignees that they uh, can uh, provide redacted versions uh, of the assignment document. So the third key takeaway from the case is on the nature of the redactions themselves. The guidance which the Court of Appeal had previously given in the Hancock case uh, was approved and summarised on uh, redactions, but it is for present purposes the distinctions that the Court of Appeal drew with the Hancock case uh, that, that interest us uh, and are relevant on the question of title to sue. The first distinction that the Court of Appeal drew in, um, in Emmanuel from the Hancock case uh, concerned a question of uh, construction. Hancock was a case which involved um, an issue of construction of the document itself, but by contrast the Emmanuel case was a much more limited question, which is to say, did the document, uh, the assignment document, affect an assignment of the debt or not? Um, a, a much more uh, discreet uh, issue. Um, the second is that there's no absolute rule um, that the whole document in question should always be disclosed in an unredacted form uh, if it is uh, asked for, um, albeit the Court of Appeal did make it clear that in the Hancock case um, that point was also made. Uh, the third uh, sub-point here is the test which the Court 
set out, which is to say the ultimate question is, quote, whether it is possible for the court to reach a safe conclusion on the effect of the document. If it cannot, it would be unfair to the other party for the court to proceed on the basis that the document had a particular effect, but if it can, there is no reason why it should not do so, and it would be unfair on the party relying on the document to refuse to do so. And that's at paragraph 46 of the judgment. It therefore appears that a greater level of redaction is possible where the case involves simply a question of the title to the debt itself, where the debtor has simply put the claimant to proof as to the validity of the assignment, as opposed to raising some issue of construction of a particular provision of the assignment, uh, which um, was close to the case in Hancock. The fourth and final key takeaway from the Emanuel decision uh, is on the process by which the defendant debtor objects to redactions themselves. The first sub-point is that the Court of Appeal had expressly discouraged uh, taking issues on the extent of uh, redactions and whether they were appropriate uh, for the first time at trial. Um, that, that is uh, entirely unsatisfactory. Um, that is at paragraph 47 of the decision. The second sub-point uh, is that the onus is on the defendant rather than the claimant um, to raise the objections to redaction and to ra raise those issues well before trial, either at case management stage or by means of an interlocutory application. Um, now, it would seem that the disclosure review document in, in cases uh, to which that uh, is applicable would provide an ideal opportunity uh, to canvas those issues. Uh, but if not, one would imagine that the defendant uh, ought to be making the application shortly after the disclosure um, uh, period has passed when the redacted document will have been uh, provided. The third point, which provides some assistance to claimant assignees, um, is that the court views with scepticism um, doubt raised by the defendant as to the title of the assignee if no attempt at all has been made to uh, clarify the position with the assignor as to whether the assignor um, is content that there has been an assignment um, at paragraph four, uh, 56 of the judgment. What the Court of Appeal said was that what can be said, however, is that a debtor who has made no attempt to clarify the position with the assignor and can point to nothing suggesting that the assignor disputes the assignment will usually not find it easy to suggest that there is a real doubt as to the assignee's title such that the court should find that the assignee has failed to prove it. Um, in other words, the defendant ought not to be raising this merely as a procedural issue in a pleading without taking the point any further, because ultimately the, the uh, question at stake is who has title to sue, um, and if the, the defendant has made no uh, attempt to contact the other party who might have uh, title, title to sue, the court will view it with a great deal of scepticism, and doubtless the claimant would wish to refer to that passage of the judgment uh, in uh, any skeleton arguments and in argument uh, at trial or on summary judgment. So those are the relevant key takeaways um, from the Emanuel case. The second issue of civil procedure uh, in banking and finance claims, which I uh, wish to raise, is the often neglected provisions of the civil procedure rules that relate to defences of tender before claims. Um, to give an example um, scenario, the claimant being a bank or a finance company um, terminates a finance agreement for failure to pay uh, any monthly instalments and brings a claim against the customer 
debtor for the balance owing on the, um, on the agreement. Um, the defendant alleges, amongst other things, that um, he or she attempted to make payment of the debt but was um, refused the ability to do so, uh, whether outright or whether by um, being deprived access of a previously used uh, online payment system uh, or uh, similar. Now, if you're representing the bank or finance company faced with that sort of the defense, um, your natural reaction may be to deny the attempted payment was, um, was attempted at all, um, to deny that the defaulting debtor was even in a position um, to have offered or, or made payment of the sums in question, or if the position is that the agreement has already been terminated, um, or perhaps an, an acceleration clause has been engaged so that the entire sum um, due under the agreement has fallen due uh, rather than um, just the monthly instalments in question um, to argue that the attempt to make payment of the lesser sum uh, was far too late because a greater sum by then was owed. Those are all perfectly valid responses for a reply to defence, for trial or even for an application for summary judgment. However, there is a little known and little used rule uh, of the civil procedure rules that does offer uh, the bank or finance company an additional procedural response uh, to that sort of defence. The defence I've just described from uh, a debtor is a creature of the common law um, and it is defined in the white book, in the glossary, as a, quote, defence of tender before claim. That is to say, quote, a defence that before the claimant started proceedings the defendant unconditionally offered to the claimant the amount due, or if no specified amount is claimed, an amount sufficient to satisfy the claim. Taking a, an aside at that point, the reference in the glossary there to a, quote, unspecified amount um, is wrong insofar as it suggests that the defence can apply to anything other than a debt claim, uh, and that point was confirmed by the Court of Appeal in the case of Aiton and RSM, Bentley, Jennison and others, neutral citation 2015, EWCA, CIV 1120. But Rule 37.2 of the Civil Procedure Rules provides that where a defendant wishes to rely on such a defence, uh, a defence of tender before claim, he must make payment into court of the amount he says he tendered to the claimant. And until he does so, the defence is simply not available to him. Now that is a high barrier indeed, um, and higher um, depending on the quantum of sum in question. Um, and many defendants who are already in default of their finance agreements may well not surmount uh, that high threshold. If the defendant fails to do so, the claimant can simply raise CPR 37.2 as an absolute procedural bar uh, to the defence uh, until such time as the condition is met. Now, as a procedural bar uh, to the defence rather than a... Um, response which requires a finding of fact uh, by the court. That can be particularly useful to um, claimant uh, banks or finance companies um, who are considering applications for strikeout or summary judgment um, because it can be uh, fairly easily contended that such a, um, such a response and such a procedural bar does not depend uh, upon a trial and that there is no good reason why such a point um, should be allowed to run to trial. It is another um, not um, often um, used and perhaps a little known arrow in the claimant's perhaps already ample uh, quiver. 
Now, I hope this podcast has been useful to you. Uh, thank you very much for listening.